This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello. Welcome back to a Thursday edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. It's Thursday, so you know what that means. It's the full ride on the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, which I've said my full name at least four times in this 20-second intro to tonight's show, but it's Thursday. So, Matt Green, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, is also here. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. You got to get that uh, that brand recognition out there. You know, just keep saying your name, and eventually it'll catch on. You know, people well, are like, I, I know I heard that somewhere. Yeah, it's like Chase that. Thomas. I, I know I've heard that name. Yeah, he's he said it like nineteen times on his show. Is that the show that he hosts? Uh, the Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> also, also him? for the for the Georgia or Georgia State fans out there, every day is Thursday. All right, they're the Thurs. What just happened? What did you just that's say? It's every day is Thursday, man. The Thurs, Georgia State. That's that's they, the Panthers. That's they, they just call them the Thurs. This is not a real thing. This. You just made this up, right? No, it's a real thing. It's every day is Thursday. It's like a legit, like, spirit thing that Georgia State does. There's no way this is real. The Thurs, yeah. I remember when we were at the College Football of Fame, there was like the little thing on Marietta Street, old football fest, mm-hmm. and they like, G-S-U, state, not southern, G-S-U. <laughs> like, they, they, they're they big on the, the G-S-U rivalry with Georgia Southern. It's, uh, it's a lot bigger than I thought. Uh, it Garrett feels like Chap- a childish rivalry. Mm. Like, I'm like, oh, it's not too serious. You guys don't hurt each other. Well, it's a better rivalry than Georgia Georgia Tech. Like, Georgia yeah, Georgia Tech's that, not really yeah. a rivalry. Like, it's just kind of, eh. It's just two different programs like GSU, the battle for the re- the real GSU, like Southern and state are close. Like they're like close. they should have some kind of rule. Like I don't I like uh, like a petty bet or something mm. like whoever wins the year before gets to gets to claim GSU for the entire year or something like that. Like that would be awesome. You know, that'd be cringy, though. The stuff that would come out for the full year we'd see we're like, oh, oh. the 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 olds got a handle of all of this and they're taking over these Twitter accounts and it's just uh, the real GSU. I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. Do you remember the uh, Brookwood where are you at and the Grayson where are you at videos? Oh, the Brooklyn sounds from, was it, it was a brother's was Brookwood park view going back. No, and forth. No, 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 no. Brookwood Grayson. Yeah. It's Brookwood Grayson. Oh, I, I, that was a little, a little after my time. It was after my time too. And you know, what's sad. This is how we know we're old. Cause I'm turning 30 this weekend. Uh, Matt, is that it was past my time. And I was looking at this and I was like, yeah, what year was that? And then I was like, what? Uh, this was like four years after I'd graduated that they did this. And I was like, oh my so even God. this is like, what, eight, nine years old? Wait, Ted again? So even this is like eight, nine years ago or yes. something? Yes. And I was like, there's no way it's been that long. And I'm like, oh my God, it's almost been a decade since this video came out. Um, 
That's crazy. Yeah. And I saw that. Yeah. Like I thought that the same thing, like when they showed that Tiger Woods shot last week, uh, that one that hung on the lip and then went in, I don't know, it was like 15 or 16 or something at the masters. They said that was like 16 years ago. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I remember that. That wasn't that long ago. I'm, I'm so old. Yeah. Did that was, did that crossover with your 30th birthday or no? Oh, taking shots. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a strong 31. All right. You know, yeah. I'm not not still in my twenties like you you young uh young whippersnappers over there, but uh yeah, we're holding it down in our thirties. Yeah. You'll you'll understand one day. You'll be there. I mean I'll be there on Sunday. Um I'm excited about the thirties, man. I'm excited about getting older. Getting older's fun. I like it. Uh, there will be a point, I'm sure, where I'm like, oh fuck, slow down. I don't actually want to be any older. Like the prime years are like thirty, like twenty nine, twenty eight. I've enjoyed it very much. Like I the pandemic, fuck it. You know what we need to get? This is something I thought about um when i get god on the horn later on the podcast i want to like I, I think i can talk him into a, a mulligan year where friend just of the pod yeah friend of the pod god <laughs> um i i just we we should all get an extra year right like this full year that we just said blown for no re- like just it's all gone just a full year gone yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk to him. We'll see if we can get him on the pod and we can, <laughs> we can discuss some things. Because, uh, uh, I don't know. I feel like if you're 62 and 63 during this time period, it's like, ah, who cares? It didn't really notice the difference. My life, mostly unchanged. 28 to, tw- I mean, 29 to 30. Like, that's it's a big year to just throw a mulligan in. The prime years. Um, it's true. I lost, I, according to you, I lost one of my prime years, apparently, uh, <laughs> right at 30. I lost it. So I don't know what that means for me now at 31. Uh, yeah. You know, if it's, was there it's another all, pandemic in 2009? It's all in review at this point. I don't know. I don't, I don't recall a pandemic taking place in 2009. Why are you, why are you taking shots? <laughs> these, these, uh, these age, you're like one and a half years younger than me. Like, That's yeah. so many days. That is so many days younger than you. It's unreal. How many days you can't even calculate. I'm oh, shoot. I guess you're like a full two years. You're like a full two years younger than me. Yeah, exactly. You, you can Wait, tell the youth. On my I'm terrible head. at math. No, you're like a year. I'm like a year and two months older than you. Get out of here. I think that was just, I think my youthfulness was part of what made me more endearing at North Georgia than yourself like you just kind of had this old that's why so attitude. many people like you yeah. so much <laughs> <laughs> shout out to swagman 89 who big fan of the pod um i'm gonna read this on the podcast uh did you see this no okay got some new reviews we're up to like 468 ratings five star we have a five star average swagman 89 is a strong name that's, it is. that's all i'm gonna say to start things off i like it swagman 89 the topic header bill simmons knockoff one star i like it good start um and then the body chase tries way too hard to be bill simmons talks too much on his own show as opposed to actually seeming interested in his guest perspectives enforces bad optics oh man really fiery digging deep on you yeah really going after me hey you know you know, thanks for listening you know that's 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 all you can say to those people hi swagman 89 still gonna keep doing the show but thank you thank you for the kind words as uh as always happy listening um we're gonna argue and i'm going to hold on let me pull up what did he say i'm going to um not seem interested in what you're saying tonight matt i'm uh i'm going to force some bad hot takes perhaps on espn's fpi because we're gonna focus because it's the off season on a different thing every week um, what I want to focus on this week, Matt, 
the college football power index got released and no surprise uh alabama coming in at number one projected to get 11 uh wins uh they have a 76 percent chance of making the playoff 51 percent chance of winning the conference 50 percent chance of making the national title and a 30 percent chance of winning the national title what blew my mind or like the fact that okay I don't know if you remember this or not, Matt Green, but you were very anti Matt Campbell on this podcast. Do you recall a few weeks oh. back when we were doing the court, the coaches' rankings, and you were like, "Oh, it's Iowa State." I mean, yeah, he's he's fine, but like he, I gave him his due. He's top ten coach in college football. Yeah, he he, he was low on your list. He, he's a little too low. He's in my top <sighs> well, five. He's yeah, a top five we'll, coach. We can keep going. Well, uh, I'll we'll get to Matt Campbell. You have he's number four. The Iowa State Cyclones coming in with a 40% chance of making the playoff this year, a 20% chance of making the national title game. One in five. One in five. Iowa State. For reference, your Georgia Bulldogs have a 6.5% chance and a 2.2 chance of winning the national title per FPI. And you're over here. Kirby ahead of Matt Campbell. What 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 are we doing? Well, first Iowa of all, State. The, the reason the percentages are where they are is because mm-hmm. for Georgia to get out of the SEC, they'll have Oklahoma's to right there for Iowa State. That's true, but it's Oklahoma. They're it's number not, two. It's not Alabama. Oklahoma and Alabama are almost neck and neck in FPI. That's what we're doing here. FPI yeah, number one. In FBI, that's about the only place they're neck and neck. We saw Spencer Rattler is the favorite to win the Heisman. What'd you say? Spencer Rattler is the favorite. Oh, Spencer Rattler, Oklahoma's going to be good this year. I mean, you I mean, you look at their schedule. I mean, they're obviously number two in the FPI. I mean, like, I can tell you what Oklahoma's going to do right now. Like, they are they don't play anybody. It's cool to see them playing the Nebraska game. Like, that's a that's a rivalry I'm down to reignite. But, like, they, they're going to walk, sleep through their first ten games, and they got Iowa State and Oklahoma State right there at the end. Like, I almost guarantee you Oklahoma's going to lose to someone they shouldn't lose to. And then be one loss and be in the playoff by the end of the year. Like that's essentially what Leak and Riley does every year. Like three of the four years they've he's been there, they've they've lost to a team that's finished unranked. So Oklahoma, yeah, they sh- they should walk right to the the college ball playoff as far as I'm concerned. I just don't understand this obsession with Iowa State. Like it's like Matt Campbell is a great coach. But like, let's not let's not pretend Iowa State is something they're not. Like, imagine like you brought up Georgia and Kirby. Like, how would we be talking about Georgia and Kirby Smart if they lost to University of Louisiana, Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma in the same year? Like, okay, it's you know you lost to the two best teams you played. Granted, they did beat Oklahoma the first time they played them, but you lost to the two best teams you played, and then you lost, and then you got. Beat pretty handedly by a Sun Belt Conference team. Well, hold like, on. You almost lost to uh, Cincinnati in the bowl game, sir. Cincinnati was undefeated. What are you talking about? Hey, Louisiana, Cincinnati, one and the same, sir. Louisiana was a solid team last year yeah. in terms of like a Sun Belt Conference for sure. But I'm saying, like, let's not get it twisted. Like, I was like, Matt Campbell's doing a great job to have Iowa State relevant and like in the top 10. But like, why are we not coming at like at Iowa State's schedule with the same energy we come at someone like Georgia? Like, Georgia lost by like, what was it, 16 and 17 to Florida and Alabama. Those are the only two teams they lost to. Alabama blew out everyone they played and won the national championship. Like Iowa State's over here, like, 
losing to Sunbelt Conference teams. Like, you know, Matt Campbell is obviously it's a not great team plural. Like, and also, it was the first game doing post-pandemic. Regardless, losing one good. Sunbelt team is, is too many. But to, calling like, them a Sunbelt team is a little disrespectful. Louisiana's good. And they, I mean, they're in the Sunbelt. The Sunbelt's a conference that's improved, but it's right. still not a Power 5 conference. Like, it's it's just weird that, like, we're kind of just focusing on, like, oh, they have all these returning starters, and, oh, Matt Campbell's a genius and all this, but, like, we're not going to point – we're not going to look at the fact that they they lost three games, like, to essentially the three best teams – two, I guess, two of the three best teams they played the entire season. Like, it's just – it's strange that we're not dissecting Iowa State's losses the way we we dissect it with someone like Georgia. Like that's it's just interesting to me. Like people's obsession with with Matt Campbell and Iowa State. Like I almost I was guarantee they're not going to be in the national championship. Like or in the playoff. Like it's it's Iowa State. Like I'm sorry. Like you gotta. Wow. I'm, I'm not trying to be the, the old get off my lawn or anything like Sounds different teams off that aren't lawn pa- me. traditional powers can't be good. Like obviously Iowa State, I expect them to be a pretty solid team this solid. year. Solid, they're a solid national title contender. I mean, so if they, I, I when I say solid, I feel like they're probably going to go nine and three. Nine and three two. is a disaster for this group this year. I feel like Iowa State going nine and three and ten and two, like that's as as good as they can ever expect to do. Like it's just, mm. but also just, think about what you're saying. Iowa State and this program and where they're having to recruit from, the players they're getting, and then you compare it to Georgia. I'm like, yeah, Georgia should be demanding eleven wins minimum every year. Like the fan base well, but should we can't demand. Talk it. out of both sides of our mouth here, though. It's like Iowa State is. Are they legit or are they just? Oh, well, they're just kind of a good story. No, you know what legit. I mean? It's, I just I don't if if they're if they're legit then let's like let's not talk about their recruiting base and where they're getting their talent from like it's impressive what Matt Campbell has done with Ohio, Iowa State but I'm not ready to like to give them a higher FPI than Ohio State well Ohio and, State's gonna be down we don't know like it's just I think it's part of it's the returning stuff I think part of it is we just there's a lot of turnover at Ohio State like we don't even know who's gonna be a quarterback for Ohio State yet. That's true, but I feel like Ohio State seems like Oklahoma at this point. It's like it doesn't really matter. What no, they I'm not going to say they're going to drop up to like nine and three, eight and four, but it's just like it's more of like, hey, they should be the favorite in the Big Ten again. But you know, I'm, they're just they're not. I feel we're going go to go through off season where people kind of convince us that these other teams in the Big Ten are you know watch out for Penn State, watch out well, for Michigan or something, yeah. kind of. Like they're gonna suggest that they can play with Ohio State, but as soon as, as soon as thing like football starts and they, we see the teams on the field, like Ohio State's gonna gonna run through this conference like they do basically every year. Like I just oh, I don't hey, know. Get I'm off not, my lawn, Matt Green tonight. I'm not buying anyone from like why really even comp- play the games with Matt Green? He's like Oklahoma, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Final Four. Let's go. Skip the regular season. Let's do this. I, at least we got or no see that's I, I guess i'm just i'm jaded as mm-hmm. like a college football like just fan because it's not what i want to happen i want teams to mix it up but i just look like at the parity in the big ten or lack thereof and it's like is indiana is indiana really gonna knock off ohio state like penn state like i just don't I mean see they gave that. ohio state a lot of trouble last year they did and i just you know, Justin Fields is gone. It could be a completely different team, but I just like look like none of these Ohio State quarterbacks have been good in the NFL. Not that I'm like starting that in a narrative or anything, but like none of these like were essentially like 
just superstar quarterbacks, and all of them essentially put up the same numbers. Like, Ohio State fans talk like JT Barrett isn't good at all, and he basically just owns every Big Ten record. Like, every Dwayne Haskins, like, every quarterback they get just kind of does the same thing, and they just, they're going to be productive. Like, I don't, if it's CJ Stroud or I don't know who, who the other, the, the true freshman they got coming in. But uh, it's like, I don't know who it's going to be, but I, I guarantee by the end of the year, he's probably got like 30 touchdowns, like five picks and, you know, double digit rushing touchdowns. And like, they're, they're going to be, you know, the best team in the big 10 by the end of it. Like they might not make the playoff, you know, maybe they, they stumble and lose to Oregon or, you know, maybe they lose, drop one conference game. But this is how I always feel about the big 12. It's like, Iowa State can can beat Oklahoma. You know, Texas can beat Oklahoma, but by the end of the year, they got to play in the Big 12 championship. They never they never seem to have a shot. Like Oklahoma just always takes care of business, and that's how I feel about Ohio State. I just feel like they're. I would like for Oregon to uh to come into the horseshoe and and knock them off. You know, change things up, give us some different teams in the playoff. But I'm afraid Ohio State's just gonna gonna run through this conference. I'm not as sold on. Them being in the playoff, like just you know, as as I am Oklahoma and and Clemson and probably Alabama. Well, also, what is the schedule for Ohio State? They open at Minnesota and they get Oregon at home right after that, and then Tulsa, who a good Tulsa team. What what is the schedule? That is an interesting start to the season. Um, I mean, is do we expect Minnesota to be better this year? Yes. Like they were, I think they were a better. huge disappointment last year. Yeah, I think they'll be better. Tanner Morgan's back. Um, it was a weird year for them. I'm not ready to count out PJ Fleck and that group. They've recruited well, and I think they're they're they'll bounce back. I don't think they'll beat Ohio State, but that's a brutal way to start off uh, a new group. And then you look at Iowa State. I was looking at Oklahoma and Ohio Iowa State's schedule too. As you're talking, Iowa State, you and I, Iowa at home is going to be a bloodbath because Iowa sneaky good. They're a really good program right now. Um, I think that game is just going to be must-see. I'm excited. Game day better be in Ames for that game on September 11th. But, um, yeah, you got that. And then you got at UNLV, at Baylor, Kansas at home, at K-State. So you're looking at, like, late October um, before games get really interesting for Iowa State. But, like, what did they, they – like, I just – going into Oklahoma on the 20th, they get Texas at home, they get Virginia, West Virginia on the road, and they get Oklahoma State at – at home oklahoma state also we haven't mentioned where they are in the in this uh fpi index they are number let's see here a nine right nine yeah so they're right below mississippi state and georgia and mississippi state being right there next to each other it, it warms my heart because mississippi state gave your bulldogs all they could handle with will rogers last year gave them all you can handle <laughs> I mean, they did, but yeah. I, I've always called Georgia the Mississippi State Bulldogs of the of the East. You know that. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> um, Mississippi State's won the division like once ever, but um, well, they have. Here's what I mean by that: they have the same amount of national titles in my lifetime. I mean, that's that's a just taking jazz. <laughs> what, what, what's going on with you today? You just. Just taking shots all day. Look, Georgia, I was surprised to see Georgia at seven because I feel like for these of all these teams that are ranked above them, like Georgia, Iowa State, and Oklahoma are the only ones that return their starting quarterback. Mm. And you look at Georgia's schedule, like the the East, like I think a lot of people expect Florida to take a, a step back next year. You know, the FBI's got them at 14, which is like that's pretty low for someone like like of Florida's brand. You know, that's kind of like a 
a solid step back. So I feel like Florida seems like clearly the second best team in the East, other than who maybe Missouri. So outside of you know an Auburn, you always have always have Auburn and the, as the lock from the West. But Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns, legends whose four way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone's experienced the pain of dropped calls and internet outages, especially working remotely this last year. So here's the question. If you're the telco company, how do you help create better experiences for customers? Simple. ServiceNow digital workflows can help solve network problems faster and provide real-time status updates so customers aren't left in the dark. That's probably why ServiceNow workflows have helped telco companies see an increase in customer satisfaction. But proactive customer communications only half the battle. With a single view of your back, middle, and front office operations, ServiceNow workflows also eliminate silos, keeping teams more in sync and more productive. With our scalable services, companies assure a better experience for both customers and employees on a single platform, the Now platform. So how do you help provide a better network experience for customers? With ServiceNow for telecommunications to help streamline network operations. Whatever your business is facing, let's workflow it. ServiceNow. Other than that Clemson game, there's just not many teams that should be able to beat Georgia on their schedule. So I, that's why Georgia seemed weird at seven because... This Alabama, like Alabama, you know, you just kind of expect to be, you know, they are what they are at this point. They just reload and they're dominant. But this seems like more question marks than Alabama's had in recent years with just losing the quarterback, losing the running back, losing the wide the receivers. Men that are coming through. Did you see the five-star linemen, the brothers? Oh, yeah. It's like... absurd the way Alabama recruits. They're a factory, but there is more question marks around them than there has been in recent years. So I would give Georgia a better shot to to win the SEC than they're giving them. Like you said, what, like a 30% shot to win the SEC? Yeah. I feel like it's essentially like a 50% shot. Like there's no one else that's coming out of the East other than Georgia. Like I just, I, just, at Mizzou. I just don't see it happening personally. So – and I just think they're they're more proven. Like Texas A&M at six, I think we kind of jumped over them. Like that was a, that was strange to me. Like we you know losing after losing um shoot Kellen Mond and I'm it's just tough to expect no drop off after having a four year starter at quarterback. Like you know Texas A&M they have to go through the SEC West and I just I don't know how you could possibly say A&M has like just in terms of a mathematical like better chance to make the playoff than Georgia would if, unless you're saying like we haven't seen a team lose the sec championship and get in. So maybe you're saying as that team that doesn't play in the sec championship, that's just a one loss team kind of how Alabama got in a few years ago. And when they got into the national championship without winning the conference, I guess that that could give A&M a better shot. But I would say Georgia seems to have more proven, like kind of returning starters and more stability than I would say Texas A&M has. And then I just don't understand at all how Mississippi State is up here. I was looking. So their schedule is actually not even great. Like I was looking at it because like that's the other weird part about the FBI with like them and where they're at right now is that I'm looking at it. And because I think let me pull up their projected wins. Yeah, their projected wins 8.2. Like eight and four. Like I, I just I look at this and I'm like, 
the schedule's tough. Like, Mississippi State has a tough schedule. They get Louisiana Tech first and Starkville. They get NC State, who's good. <laughs> they get a good that's NC a, State. That's a, one of the more quality games at a conference I've ever seen Mississippi State schedule, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they got a really good quarterback now at NC State and that with Mr. Larry. And then you got at Memphis. Memphis is always going to be good. Like, that's going to be a high-scoring fair. Then... They get LSU and Texas A&M back-to-back, and then Alabama. They have a three-game stretch of those three. Welcome to the SEC West, man. <laughs> I feel like that's what happens every year. You know what I mean? That's why I don't understand. Well, they also team... are on the road at Arkansas and at Auburn. Yeah, I just going four and seven in Mike Leach's first year. Like I was even, I was like, maybe there's something to like year two of Mike Leach and. It's like at Texas Tech, he went from seven and six first year to seven and five. Washington State went from three and nine first year to six and seven, and then three and nine again year three. Like his year three in Texas Tech was a nine and five season. Like got into the top twenty five, but like I'm not really sure what people are basing this on. Like Will Rogers looked solid when he played. You know, he looked solid against Georgia. That's for sure. Threw the ball about sixty times, but it's like I don't see them you know, coming out of the, the SEC with even a winning conference record. Like, I, maybe I'm missing something on Mississippi State, but like, with a, like you said, A&M, I think LSU will be improved. You know, maybe maybe people are expecting Auburn to kind of struggle in year one of Brian Harson, but, you know, Auburn wasn't that bad. Like, Auburn's not some rebuilding job. Like, Auburn, they get the right guy in there. They, they could be good this year or next year. You know, like, if someone can can improve Bo Nix. I feel like Bo Nix has the tools like to be a good quarterback in, in college at least. So I'm, I just, I was hoping you could shed some light on why Mississippi state is at number eight. Cause I, for the life of me cannot. And even going at Memphis, like that's, that could be a dangerous game as far as I'm concerned for, for Mississippi state. I guess they're just betting on this offense just being otherworldly. Will Rogers did show a lot at the end of last year, and I'm a Will Rogers guy. I think he's going to be really good in this conference. And they found their guy, and they found their their next Gard- Gardner Minshew. And maybe that's all it is. It's just they're going to be a pain in the ass to slow down on Saturdays. Like with the full season of installs for Leach's offense at Mississippi State, that they're just going to be a pain in the ass for all these teams. But um, I don't know. I thought <laughs> everything you need to know about the ACC is in this too, by the way. Clemson, who we think is going to have kind of a down year, or down in terms of like, eh, we'll see what DJ Ugalehi looks like. But eh, by all accounts, losing ETN, losing a lot of guys. So you, I see. You expect Clemson to take a step back? I, I don't. I don't. Expect I don't think Clemson. they're gonna. I, I, I would not put them in like a favorite category to win the national title. Like I would be very, very surprised if they won the Natty next year. I would say, but they have a seventy-two percent chance of winning the ACC. The highest of any, any team. Yeah, it's just because, like, you have that game versus Georgia to open up, and then yeah. it's like, who's beating Clemson? Like, you know, go at NC State week four. Like, mm. North Carolina's not on the schedule. Like, you know, I'm, they really not have North Louisville? Carolina on it? No, they don't have North Carolina on it. So, they're like, they'll most likely play North Carolina. I think we, most people think in the ACC championship. That'd yeah. be a, a solid opponent. But, you know, at Louisville, uh, first week of November, like... You know, maybe that's a tough game, but you know, maybe Florida State's improved, but I don't know. I just I think it's gonna be like I think if Clemson loses to Georgia in the opener, and then Georgia, like if Georgia's the SEC champion or something, or at least is playing in the SEC championship game, and that's your only loss, like 
you run the table, go eleven and one, and or then twelve and one after winning the SEC, ACC championship. I, I I almost feel like it's a pre just a pre uh, predetermined result almost. Like it, it seems like Clemson's gonna just walk through this conference because I mean they return. I mean that that cornerback that got kicked off right. That's the only starter that is not returning for for Clemson next year. So yeah. they're they're loaded on defense, and then like you said, DJ Uyunglele, if, if I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, he's going to be a solid quarterback. He's not going to be bad in this offense. So I think I think they have plenty of playmakers. I think they'll they'll be right back in the playoff again. I think they'll be in the playoff again. I just don't think they're a team that's going to make it through the gauntlet and everything else. But we'll we'll see. We'll we'll see what the offseason plays out. Who who do you see on this list that's way too low that you're like, oh, this rank? I I'm buying stock. Give me two because I have two for you. You go first. USC is way too low on this. USD is behind Indiana, West Virginia, Texas Tech, which is just preposterous at how high Texas Tech is in this list. Um, I think USD with Keaton Slovis in this group is going to be really good. I think they have a, they should be considered the favorites to win the big, the, the Pac-12, and I think they're my uh, I would if I had to guess if there's a Pac-12 team that makes the playoff, it's uh, USC. Um, Where do they have USC? They have them way down, like twenty. I guess they're not top 20? twenty-five, huh? Yeah, they're twenty-six. Oh. Oh, okay. Way um, too I low would... on USC. You said USC, and who's the other one? Uh, the other one is where did I had it? Where did it go? Hold on, hold on, hold on. LSU. Okay, eighteen's too too low for LSU. They're yeah, they're getting a lot of talent back. I love the offseason additions on offense. I think this is a do or die year. I like Max Johnson a lot, and it seems like he's the leader in the clubhouse there. The lefty, he looked good down the stretch. I think LSU will. We'll be back. I think they'll be like what people are expecting. Like where Texas A&M is on this list right now, that's where I put LSU. Oh, see, I don't know if I would put them that high. I think personally, just with proven talent, I think George is a little low, but like seven compared to like what maybe three or four. Like it's not that big of a difference. But I honestly like if I was gonna say a random out of just out of the left field team was from the SEC West was gonna be in the top ten. I would have said Ole Miss instead mm. of Mississippi State. Like Ole Miss down at 22 and Mississippi State at 8. Like I wouldn't have either of them that high. But if you were going to tell me one of them was going to be that high, I definitely would have thought Ole Miss. Like they at least seem like the sexier pick. Like I'm just – I can't get past the Mississippi State stuff. Like I'm just You're confused. really upset about it. I'm just confused. Though. Where the, who's, who's making this list? Where's the rationale? But yeah, Ole Miss seems like that team that just is, is dangerous, that – could beat anybody, but you also feel like they could lose to anybody. So it's it's tough to really know where to rank them. LSU, I definitely would agree with you. Seems like that team that's that's being undervalued right now because of one bad season. But uh, also, I don't know if I necessarily think they should be higher, but I would I I expected them to be higher, and that was North Carolina. Like at thirteen, I was kind of expecting the Iowa State maybe even Oklahoma state hype to be on North Carolina. Like this, well, we should also mention like Oklahoma state dark too. horse. They fit in my, like I was confused. We haven't really touched on them, but that's way too high. Cause we, we haven't even seen one good season of Spencer Sanders yet. Like, can we get one before we crowned Oklahoma state? Can we get one? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, Mike Gundy, he's, he's got a, a history of at least putting together like competitive teams, like flirting with those top 10 rankings and stuff. But, but North Carolina seems like they have a lot of those pieces that people point to of like, you know, this is going to make them a factor next year. And I think having 
in my opinion, the best quarterback in college football, Sam Howell. I think that I I would have North Carolina in my top ten. I would I would have him. I would definitely have him ahead of Iowa State personally. Yeah. Um. Well, that's all I've got on the FBI. Uh, do you want to quickly talk about uh, the recruiting calendar resuming back on June first, and the NCAA panel formally approving a new transfer rule? Yeah, I mean, those are both huge, uh, huge news for, I guess, for the people who don't know out there. The They've approved at the end of the dead period for the recruiting dead period, which is recruits can come on, on, on campus and make official visits and everything. June 1st is when that's being lifted and you're already seeing teams line up visits for that first weekend of June. And I feel like that's just a return to some normalcy, right? Like seeing recruits on campus. Throwing up, throwing up the, the gloves and putting on the, the uniforms and everything on official visits. Like, that's what we need. Need to get back to normal. And then, yeah, I think it was already, I think, pretty much everyone knew that it was going to be approved. But but now having the the, fir- the one-time transfer uh, for uh, transfers. Ah, sorry. The one-time transfer rule for any student athlete uh, without sitting out is, is now passed. And and that's definitely a good rule. It was only a matter of time. Like just the hypocrisy of, of the NCAA was kind of just showing that like these coaches can go wherever they want, but the 18 to 22 year olds that have a limited amount of time to play, they are the ones that have to sit out. After a while, it just it didn't make any sense. Guys transfer for so many different reasons, and it's just so arbitrary how some of them would be eligible with completely illegitimate reasons or seeming illegitimate, and then guys that did have legitimate reasons. Would, would then be forced to sit out. So it's nice to just just take it off the table. None of these, I mean, I don't know, I guess the conference stuff is still, that's still in limbo of, you know, interconference transfers being approved. But, I mean, that's only a matter of time, too, because at the end of the day, these guys aren't paid, you know? It's like you just can't, you shouldn't be able to prevent a, a college student from from going to another college and trying to find the best opportunity for himself, you know? Yeah. I'm excited uh, to see uh, what what this all means. I think the one-time transfer rule, people are freaking out about it, but it'll probably be weird for a year or two, but it will, it'll settle. <laughs> Things will, it, the, a lot of players will figure out that it's, the grass is not as greener and that it's just going it, to, it's going to settle because there's going to be the good stories of the guys who find the right situation and then flip it into a great thing that gives them a professional career. And there are going to be other ones who go to an even worse situation and then are kind of screwed. Um, I don't know. I think you're 100% right. I think for maybe a year, two, maybe three, it's going to be the wild, wild west. But then you're going to see, you know, these these teams, they're a business, you know, and you're going to see the the harsh reality of the business. And you had a scholarship at this school and you wanted to leave. And now those scholarship opportunities aren't there like you thought they would be. And, you know, there's going to be plenty of cautionary tales of guys transferring from D1 schools and not having any other D1 schools that want to take them. So you're, you're definitely going to see just some craziness, I think, for a couple of years. But yeah, it'll, I think, work itself out just because it is a two-way street. It's like if, if these players can leave, it's like these schools can also be trying to get other players. So these guys, uh, I think, kind of be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Matt Green, shorter show tonight. Um, traveling this weekend and got some other stuff to cook in tonight. But uh, thank you, as always, my good friend. And we'll be back to normal next week. Um, thank you. 
my good friend, and uh, stay safe down there in Dacula, Georgia. And yes, I'll, uh, sir. You safe. uh, mm-hmm. you you hold it down for that dirty thirty. Okay. Birthday, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Asheville. I'm excited. I'm excited. You only turn thirty once, is what they say. Matt Green. Oh, so you're going to Asheville? So you're some hippie, huh? Is that <laughs> is that is that what's going on? Yes. No, you know what are you me. going up there for? Like breweries and stuff? You big brewery guy? I'm a big just scenery guy. Love getting away. Love the mountains. You love seeing the mountains. I'm a big mountain guy. Yeah. I'm very I'm more of a mountain guy than a beach guy. So it's just always been uh I like getting away and getting the, where the air is crisp, where the the water flows like what was the Dumba Dumber line? Something Capistrano. What was that <laughs> I line? I, I would have thought any dumb and dumber line you would have asked me, I would have been able to come up with, but I uh, wasn't prepared for that one. The wine flows like something out of compass. Like what? Oh, this is going to drive me nuts. Um, damn. Now I got to watch dumb and dumber tonight to, uh, to, to remember this. Um, either way for that guy down there in Dequila, Georgia, Matt Green for myself up here in Knoxville, Tennessee. That is all I've got. Uh, stay tuned for the other two parts in this very episode, but uh, Matt, Thank you as always, my friend. Have a good one. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Thursday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I'm now joined by old friend William R. Washington of RBR Wrestling, a very good wrestling podcast that you could listen to every single Wednesday night uh, by going to fanoff.com and go go check it out. Uh, it's a great, great show that I've been listening to for over a decade. I've done the math because I turned 30, Will, on Sunday, and Dang. I know for sure I was, watch- I was listening to <laughs> RBR in college. So that is where we're at. Yeah, I bumped into a listener. Uh, I, I was at Daly's place on Friday, and uh, he was telling me how he's been listening for about 12 years. And then I thought, well, I mean, I've been hosting it for 16, so uh, no matter what, I can always top everybody's number. Um, so, yeah, and they we're approaching. I'll be 34 this year, so I'll be approaching the point where RBR has consumed half of my life. Mm. How do you feel about that? Uh, interestingly, <laughs> I, I have some thoughts about it that I'm not ready to share yet, but, uh, Oh no. Yeah. Good so, thoughts or bad thoughts? Thoughts. Oh no. <laughs> so that's about it. Oh no. Is it coming this year? 2021? Uh, well, so 2021 is when I turned 34, yeah. And so next year, uh, so I, I did some math and I calculated things. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's just, it's going right, to be folks. interesting. I will be taking over as the lead <laughs> host of RBR Weekly Wrestling Talk. You heard it here first. Yep. That's the news. No, it's actually Cody or Scats. And then that's it for, for the show. I think. And Scats is an original, so he'd be coming back. Yeah. Matt Galloway, he's it, yeah. That, that's what it is. Um, or that guy who's there for a cup of coffee. Uh, not Michael Z. Bill S- Bill Sullinger. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, how was Daly's place? So you you went. Um, how was the experience? Daly's place is an incredible venue. I, uh, you know, I, I had kind of a crummy night, and I told the story on RBR. But uh, beyond that. Um, you know, I went to Tampa, I went to Florida for WrestleMania weekend and I flew into Tampa, but then uh, I happened upon, um, a really good seat for, uh, for the house always wins the AEW house show. 
uh, which had a, I think it was the biggest crowd they've done in the pandemic. Um, and so I thought, okay, I got to go. And so I drove, I think it was like three and a half hours, um, which goes by when you've got podcasts to listen to. Um, but I, I drove the three and a half hours to Jacksonville from Tampa and yeah, Daly's place. It's a great venue. Like it's, it, TV doesn't illustrate, and I get what the wrestlers were saying now, because like, um, you know, Kenny Omega has talked about how it's an outdoor venue, but it doesn't look like it on television. But it truly is an outdoor venue that just happens to have like a roof, but the sides aren't covered. So you're still feeling like you're outdoors. Like you still get wind, you still get all of that. You just won't get rained on. Um, and, uh, you know, they talked about how like, uh, what makes Daly's Place different for wrestlers is the weather conditions that uh, in the summertime, you know, they're wrestling outside in 100 degree weather and, uh, you know, trying to wrestle 20 minute matches and getting completely gassed or <laughs> having to have heaters on in the wintertime. And, but like as a venue, it's just really cool. And it's like fully outdoors. And like the social distancing thing is like, you know, you're kind of you're in your own pod. Uh but there's still a lot of people. It still gets really loud. I almost feel like TV isn't doing it justice of, of how loud the fans are. Like I felt like I was just at a normal wrestling event. Um, and uh, but then it's an amphitheater setup, so everybody kind of has the same view. And I really, I, I, until being there, I was like, this is really conducive to pro wrestling. Like, um, you know, the the thing about pro wrestling is there's always the fan side and the hard camera side and you're either and as a wrestler you're either playing to the hard camera or you're playing to the fans but never necessarily both and then in daily's place you kind of have the setup where the fans are on the same side as the hard camera so as wrestlers are like playing to the hard camera they're also just playing to the fans in the building and i feel like that's a really easy way to generate a reaction (laughs) and uh so it's kind of cool uh i was actually really happy being there and it was uh it was just a cool loud environment and uh and also it was nice to see that you know i thought for a long time that you know what do we need house shows for like what do wrestlers need house shows for and i forgot that part of the charm of house shows is to not have the constraints of television that you can just do fun stuff you can just uh you can play with the fans you know you hear a reaction from a fan um you know, the little things like, you know, a fan once uh, at a house show I was at when uh, Sean Spears was locked in a uh, a submission and mid submission, somebody yells, you're not a 10, Sean Spears, you're not a 10. And he just responds back while in the submission. He's like, your mom was a 10. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like little things that you really couldn't do, like on television or like uh, you can't just like stop mid match to like grab the mic and just like berate the fans to like turn up the heat there's little things you just can't do but they're able to do and i I recognize that uh the house show experience is something that the wrestlers are going to need back just to not have to continually work in six minute constraints like just do what you want well they made up some event this past week when i was watching dynamite early this morning uh something not in your house what was it that they showed was this what you were at what yeah the yeah, it was the the house always wins. Yeah, okay. So that was made up. I don't recall that ever being a thing. <laughs> and I saw that and I was like, what is this? Is this another AEW Dark Elevation? No, what what am I looking at here? What, no, that what was the ho- that was the house show. But yeah, okay. um 
So Tony Khan had said for a while that, you know, they weren't going to put that show out. Uh, he was like, you know, the advertisements were, um, you have to see this. Uh, you, you have to be there to see this because this will not be on television. And that was actually kind of part of the appeal for me mm-hmm. in that uh, we were talking. Oh, about so you went show. reckless and you were berating the, the wrestlers. <laughs> you were like, I get carte blanche. It's not going to be on no, TV. Uh, yeah. Other- even worse. So we, you and I were talking about before we started recording mm. that, um, you know, I, I've always been known for my wrestling memory yeah. and that I watch. I can't give up watching your children because, cry for, for the yes. clicks. <laughs> uh, but I can't give up watching because, like, I hate having those gaps in my wrestling knowledge. Mm. And it was one of those things where uh, I've seen every AEW show, whether it's Dark Elevation, Dynamite, the pay-per-views, all of it. And I've got it all fairly well memorized. You're not watching all of can, Dark every week. Yep. Are you really? Uh, I've seen. I mean, I keep it on in the background. It's not like I'm like attentively paying attention, but like I work from home, so what am I mm. gonna do? Uh, so I just throw it on, and it, 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 I throw it on Wednesday mornings, and I just I have it on. Um, so at least I've been aware of all the results. Uh, but it was like, oh no, a show is gonna happen and create a gap in my AEW memory because uh, I have it. I won't have seen a show. It's so. Um, like I, I wasn't going to go out of my way to go until I was like, well, you know, tickets were cheap. It was like 30 bucks for like a really good seat. I think it was in the front row of section two. And I was like, I, I could do this and I'm going to do it. And so I did. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, the thing is though, they did have the cameras taping. They had the whole, whole crew there there. The first half of it and Tony Schiavone and Colt Cabana and Ricky Starks were on commentary for the second half. So, like, at some point, they're going to put that out. There's no reason to record commentary for something that you're not putting out. And, like, they were filming it. They, they I have a feeling it's going to be put out eventually. Interesting. Um, WrestleMania also happened this weekend. Well. Yes, it did. Um, I hated it. Hated it because it was two nights. Oh. It, no, okay. I didn't mean the actual matches and everything. I just, I, I'm a busy guy, Will, in grad school. Work a normal job, do a lot on this podcast. Do it. I have a lot to watch. I have a lot to watch. And then yeah. when I remembered that it was two nights of WrestleMania, along with everything that was moving on this week and all the new time slots for different shows, I was like, dear God, I have so much to watch. And I just like, I, I can feel the knots just popping out in the back of my shoulders <laughs> because I'm like, this is so much content I have to watch. Uh, so I watched it and it was all great. Like, I think uh, this was one of my more enjoyable WrestleManias. And I also just like it being two nights anyway. I think this should be actually a full-time thing uh, doing two night WrestleManias. Um, I was more annoyed about the takeovers and everything because that like added to the week and just it was a lot of stuff and uh, it's content wars and I don't like it because I don't have time. Uh, but I did think this was a good show. I was happy to see Guy Who Stinks, uh, also known as Drew McIntyre, lose clean Bobby Lashley. <laughs> I was a very big fan of this. As a very, uh, the mm-hmm. problem was, I, I was a, I was okay with it. I thought that, um, like, I would have preferred Bobby win a little cleaner because, mm-hmm. like, as it stood, Drew just looked like an idiot. Like yeah. he had it won until MVP was like, "Hey," and he's like, "Oh, let me stop my finisher that I've beaten." Everybody from Brock Lesnar to Randy Orton to you name it, I've beaten him with. But somebody at ringside just yells, hey, and I'm going to stop in the middle of my finish, which allows me to get distracted by Bobby Lashley, who beat me. And I just thought, uh, you just made Drew look dumb more so than look. That's good. No, I would have rather 
Bobby just looked stronger in this night, not mm. smarter. Because like that's not who Bobby is. Bobby is just somebody who will beat you. He's not necessarily somebody who needs to beat you viscerally. Well, that might have been and, more of MVP being smarter there. Yeah, but also, what did MVP really do besides just yell, hey? Like, he didn't even grab his foot or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I was clean. <laughs> yeah, it was clean because it was more so Drew getting distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, I will say this. I think everybody who looked at the WrestleMania card said on paper, they're like, oh, night two is going to be the much better night. And I think by nearly every measure, it was not. Yeah, didn't have Bad Bunny on it, which was a problem. Uh, No, it didn't. Uh, And uh, I feel like every night one match, other than maybe the world titles, was better than its night two counterpart. Like the women's title was better in night one. The, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I enjoyed night one a whole lot more. It was just a, uh, a better experience. Also had the better, I, I, I enjoyed both main events, but I think night one had the better main event and also had the better memorable moment of the, the whip. Like that's just going to be an all time. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. Great moment. Uh, I also don't know mm-hmm. that, uh, Roman retaining was all that wise. Um, and that's not to say that uh, that man is not wrong. losing and eating a pin for for years. Like, well, I, yeah, I know. I, I guess the issue is that this is your first night with fans, and probably mm-hmm. something, uh, probably the night that you should have sent the fans home a little happier. And I think fans uh, like Roman. No, he got booed. Yeah, like, they like was... him. That's good. It used to be like just eh, go away. No, it's like they he's getting booed. Well, yeah, but good. what I mean is the happy ending. I feel like. WrestleMania has has definitely been kind of the king of those moments of um, of the Daniel Bryan type ending for WrestleMania 30. I'm not saying Bryan should have won, but uh, just that type of ending or, you know, WrestleMania 14 with Stone Cold or just anything along those lines. With WWE, the WrestleMania 12, Shawn Michaels, like there's always been the uh, that big moment, that big crowning moment that WrestleMania is really good at. And I feel like with your first night in front of fans, you probably should have done that. Uh, and especially when you had a really easy story to tell with Edge, um, which is the easiest story to tell in professional wrestling. For whatever reason, WWE just chooses not to. Almost every time that story has been handed to him. And the story I'm referring to is wrestler gets injured while champion and has to relinquish title. Wrestler returns to challenge for title they never lost. And wins it in a moment of triumph. Karrion Cross the, did that last week. I mean, who, nobody watches NXT. Like, I'm talking about, like, in the um, uh, uh, on main scale WWE. Like, you know, that was an easy, like, it was a layup with Balor where he won mm. the Universal title and uh, had to relinquish it the next night. And so it's like, okay, you bring him back immediately to challenge for the title. That is a layup and they. Didn't do it. He didn't even get his first shot for another like year and a half after that. Uh, and then, um, and same with like uh, Daniel Bryan, who had to relinquish the title at WrestleMania er, uh, in 2014, and he never lost it. So it was like, okay, again, layup. Uh, Daniel Bryan is the fan favorite. You bring him. He came back in 2015. He came back just before the Royal Rumble. It is the perfect opportunity to have him win the Rumble, and go challenge for the title he never lost. And then you had Edge, who had the biggest version of that story, which is that he had to relinquish the title 10 years ago 
10 years ago and came back, won the Rumble, and is and has the opportunity to challenge for the title he never lost. And for whatever reason, WWE is so against just like doing it. I feel like they've only really done it maybe twice. And like I think about uh, Batista was one of them. Where like Batista, he didn't win it immediately when he had to relinquish the title in uh, twenty uh, two thousand six. But he conti- But like he lost his first challenge, and th- that was the story. Was that he can't seem to get back to that level and then he eventually did he like had the challenge booker t i think like three or four times before finally he beat him and became world champion and that was the story but like but you got something better and roman pinned them both no that that sucks (laughs) i enjoyed it and i enjoyed the visual of roman pinning them both i just love a good dominant heel that actually and i love this version of roman reigns it's great i I like i like it too i just i feel like uh, and i said this on rbr but i think that um historically uh the things that are remembered most historically typically have to have some kind of historical moment and the easiest historical moment is a title change because then you literally made history literally it's written in the history books that this moment changed the world title so but the problem is with an instance like this where you had what i thought was a great main event of uh edge daniel bryan and roman reigns there's no historical moment attached to it so it's just a match that exists. Um, and uh, I think historically this match won't be remembered as well as like Batista, Orton, and Brian because that match had uh, – that match made history. And mm. I don't know about that. But this one didn't. This one didn't make any history. It's it's just another match that took place inside Roman's reign. Mm. I like the pun. Um <laughs> Bianca though she had a great moment and that'll be she remembered. made history she did um I thought night one by and large AJ Styles and Elmos is fun for me in the new day that was fun Cesaro and Rollins was what it needed to be Natalia and Tamina was <laughs> I don't know who I, I I don't know who that's for um Maxwell or who they're for no no definitely not Maxwell <laughs> like, I don't know who Natalia and Tamina as a team are for or why people who are uh, bad at their jobs that still want good opportunities there's a yeah, lot of them out well, there it's one of those things where like you're bad at your job but you've got tenure uh-huh. and so therefore uh you should because like i see Union that from a lot of, will joins the podcast I, I saw from a lot of people who were like uh um you know tamina finally deserves her due she's been around since 2010 and i thought but she doesn't she hasn't done anything since 2010 like she just existed. Is that what we're doing now? Like, you just get your due for being there? Yeah, I don't know. It It, it is what it is. But um, I don't know. I think things are pretty solid. I mean, Raw was kind of boring. I, I sighed. I wrote down in my notes watching Raw early on uh, Tuesday of just, like, the main event scene of, like, oh, Raw is still Raw because Randy Orton interrupts, Braun Strowman interrupts, um, The Fiend obviously still not completely done, and I don't know where that's going with the Alexa Bliss stuff, but like, um, <laughs> you look at it, and Drew also there, and you're lashing, I'm like, oh god, this is not a main event scene anybody should want, this is this is not good, we need to, they need another shakeup already. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know who... <sighs> Like, I feel like their goal is still Drew McIntyre, that at this point it was really, really yeah, I think that they just wanted Bobby to 
to not have a short reign because he didn't even get to retain it through a pay-per-view like he won it and then uh yeah he hasn't this would have this was his first pay-per-view title defense so i think they just wanted him to have that but ultimately i think they're still on the drew mcintyre kick interesting i don't know i I don't know Um, one might even say they're on a claymore okay we we won't we won't will um (laughs) AEW this week. What it, who are some who are the winners for you this week and who are the losers? Uh biggest winner Jade Cargill who just continues mm. to prove that she uh is something special and it it is amazing. Like that that was a diamond get for them. Um because uh I you know there's certain little character things that I feel still need some work with her um as far as like her speaking. Um but I feel like that's she'll get that. In the meantime, though, her look, she's like everything people pretended Charlotte was for a long time. Um, where like, you know, everybody had always said Charlotte is just like the this natural athlete. And that's not to say that Charlotte's bad, because I think Charlotte's great. Um but great like promo this week from her. Yeah, very good. Uh but like when I see Jade Cargill, um, that's like everything that uh I've heard about Charlotte for the longest time, that she is uh, like she's just got the stature, she's got the build, she's got the muscles, but then um, she just seems to be naturally athletic in the ring, uh, and she she is so much better than anybody in their uh, who's in their third televised match, I guess fourth if you're gonna count um, the house show, but anybody who's having their fourth match, she's way better than anybody who should be at that point. And it's like, and then the presentation of her, um, they've done a great job with where like her entrance has the, like the dark lighting and her entrance the little is circle. phenomenal. Yeah. They've got the little circles on the ramp. I don't even know what that's supposed to be, but I love it. Um, and the, the Tron with the, the storm brewing and the music and the pyro. And it's like, they are presenting her like a star. And then she comes out and she dominates. Uh, I feel like she definitely came out of this week's dynamite, uh, a winner. I would agree. I would agree. Um, who else did you have as a winner? Uh, but also her opponent, Red Velvet. Um, I feel like Red Velvet comes off so fiery, and uh, I just there's just something about her that's clicking for me. Um, and even in this match, like she shouldn't have beaten Red Velvet, so like there's no way I would have pushed for that. Uh, but I love how the story of the match was. She's gonna give everything she's got at red velvet like red velvet needs to be like female brock lesnar she just needs to beat the shit out of people um but did you say female brock lesnar for red velvet uh, not red velvet i mean jade cargill okay jade cargill. <laughs> I was like, like, what? <laughs> no, jade, jade cargill needs to be like female brock mm-hmm. lesnar she just needs to, to conquer people but at the same time red velvet uh can kind of in that same vein be one of like the smaller opponents that brock has faced where it's like yeah. um she's She's really trying and really, uh, you know, can throw Jade as far off her game as she can get, uh, but ultimately falls short and uh, Red uh, and Jade continues to look dominant. But I, I think those two were winners. Also, uh, there's a just because he's a big name in Twitter discourse, literally as we speak, Anthony Agogo kind of wins because. Um, there's a whole lot of debate over his finish, which was a gut punch. And uh, 
and not just a gut punch, but a gut, gut punch followed by ref stoppage. There's so many people talking about this right now and whether or not that's a good finish. I think it's great. I think that, uh, are you kidding me? Being punched in the gut by an Olympic boxer. Um, like the idea, and it's not like he punched like John Moxley and he went down. Like he, he punched some jobber who, um, as I saw put on Twitter, like looks like he's on his way to a GCW show. Like this is not somebody who, uh, looks like they should hang anyway. But the idea of if you continue to put, it's like Paul Heyman booking one one, right? Paul Heyman had this idea that, um, or the notion that, uh, if you do a move enough times in front of crowds, eventually, uh, it just gets accepted as the norm. Like he had the idea that if I gave Mark Henry a headlock and you tapped out immediately, um, and you did that for 32 straight weeks, eventually the crowds will see the headlock as the most devastating move in wrestling just because um, <laughs> uh, you did it enough times and you had it be effective enough times. But then on the 33rd time, the moment that you have like a John Cena power out of it, it's like, oh my God, he just powered out of Mark Henry's headlock. How did he do that? When like at, at the end of the day, it was just a headlock. Um, but it's the same thing with Anthony Agogo to me. If you have enough people go down to that gut punch, and then finally he has to face somebody like Cody. Um, and it's been, you know, let's say it's been about a year of him beating people with this gut punch. And now all of a sudden, Cody has to survive a match with Anthony Agogo, and the match is all about protecting his midsection because he knows if Anthony Agogo lands that gut punch, it's over for him. Like, there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. And I think it's great. I think that people are just kind of stuck in the mindset of, well, people get punched in the gut all the time. Yeah, but not everybody's an Olympic boxer. Like, <laughs> at some point, uh, we, ha- we have to accept that some people are better at things than others. And, yeah, uh, no, one day I just want, like, I want him, I want them to keep doing it so much that somebody gets hit with it and just, like, vomits. I feel like that's like the best thing you could do with the gut punch as a finish. I don't know. What'd you think of it? I just, it's really hard to pull that off in professional wrestling. And I think it's really hard to retrain wrestling fans brains on this. And I, I don't know for me, it, it's not, not for me. Uh, See, I, I think you can't retrain wrestling, bra- uh, wrestling fan brains in the same way that you, you always have been able to, which is just like res- repetition. That's how you retrain rep or that's how you retrain wrestling brains fans. Wrestling brains fans. Well, wrestling see, I fans take notes brain. on all of these shows every week, and I just write down "doesn't look good." <laughs> and I just feel like I'm going <laughs> to do that every time. I'm just going to write "doesn't look right." I don't know. Maybe I, I guess I just feel like you have enough. You beat enough people with it eventually. Because like I used to think Big Show's knockout punch was silly. Oh, it's until always he silly. Did it yeah, enough. I, I think it's but always looked silly until he did it enough times, and then eventually I was like, "No, actually, this is good." The only thing I hated about the knockout punch was Big Show's taller than everybody, so, so why did he go he way just, down? Like, no, it was just like, why didn't he just start every match with mm. that? Why does this have to be a finish when, like, literally, it would be very difficult for anybody shorter than him to evade that? Mm. Like, just punch people and win. Who were uh, who were the losers this week for you? Ray Phoenix, obviously. Um, <laughs> I was. I don't know. It was pretty much like a, an all-around decent show to me. I, it like I won't even say decent. I thought it was good because I didn't like last week's episode at all. Um, and I think this was a step up. Like because oh, wait, one more winner. Um, and that is 
the entire women's division. Uh, because maybe it's not having NXT on against it, but uh, they featured the women more than they have in any single episode of AEW, and everybody has a clear direction. You had, uh, I mentioned Red Velvet and uh, Jade Cargill, but then right after, they showed the Britt Baker promo where she is um, trying to work the system of working up the rankings and she's currently ranked number three but then she noted that red velvet was number two and just lost so she's like that should put me at number two and uh the number one contender faces sheeta next week so again more direction because we have the number one contender ty conti challenging hikaru sheeta the AEW women's world champion and so like there's things happening with them and it's like they've been kind of focused on ty conti for weeks now and uh they're doing something with her uh and then there's um, there was also a promo from uh, Thunder Rosa, and she made her intentions clear of where she's headed. But then you also had the return of Chris Statlander, uh, and she beat Amber Nova. But it was like she uh, Chris Statlander looked good, and I mean like really looked good. Like she just she trimmed down um, and uh, put on a bunch of muscle and just looked phenomenal. And it was like dang. You really showcase the women this week in a way that you never have. And uh, I, I was I was very happy with that. I guess losers. Uh, I, I don't know. Matt Hardy. Uh, um, and also. Uh, I think I, I, I can see how the faction stuff is starting to become a bit much for people. Um, Not and, me. I'm very pro faction faction. Uh, I'm very pro faction. I mean, like. I can only be so with it if there's um if there's an end game to it all in that like like to me it feels like they're building to some kind of like big faction show of like uh but the only thing I could think of you would do that with is war games or blood and guts um and like they have announced that for pinnacle versus uh versus Jericho uh, sorry versus the inner circle so like are they going to do more of them uh <laughs> Because, like, there are multiple situations now where there's a team of five that could face another team of five. Um, you know, like the Elite, now that they just brought in uh, the Young Bucks, or brought the Young Bucks back into the fold. That's now a team of five uh, who could easily face any other team of five. <laughs> like, I don't know. What, what What's happening here? Like, there's a lot of, like, warring stuff. So I am curious what's where that's all going. But for the most part, I wasn't let down by the show. And I thought it was paced better than usual because it felt like they weren't trying to pace it for preventing channel changers. It seemed like it was just paced to exist. And that's how I've wanted dynamite to be for a long time. All right. Well, uh, will, what can uh, we check out from you this week across RBR wrestling and everywhere else? Uh, well, you know, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash RBR wrestling. We did a lot of wrestling coverage. So this is going to be our break from pro wrestling this weekend. We're actually going to talk some movies, uh, uh, which that's, that's just something we, we did to just kind of cleanse our palate, you know, and get back into wrestling talk, uh, later on. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, RBR wrestling is just going to keep trucking and it's going to keep going till, uh, till it doesn't. Till your, till your announcement. What? I have an announcement? You said 35, age 35. There's a whole thing that you haven't... You have yeah, no, I'm not, telling, I'm not telling that. <laughs> not on here. 
I thought that uh, that's, I mean, okay. I thought that's yeah, where we were in our friendship. Well, but apparently not. Apparently not. Um, <laughs> the Blue Wire platform in the Chase House podcast is not a big enough platform for Will Fleamar Washington. I guess we'll look out for it on AW it Unrestricted. The, it won't be for this at, at this point, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Stay safe out there. Thank you, as always, for making the time. Of course. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I am now joined by someone who knows far more about the Louisville Cardinals and the way to say the city of Louisville than myself, Mike Rutherford of Card Chronicle, a very good Louisville. I just, I'm giving all kinds of the pronunciations here on this podcast about the Louisville. Um, Mike, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. You did real well there. It's, you have to say it like you have uh, a mouthful of bubble gum, like you're a nine-year-old who just you know, went too deep on that big league two, and you're just saying bubble. That's just that. That's how it is. You, you did real well there. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I think it was the book that I read on um, Petrino uh, or Patino rather uh, during quarantine. Um, I already forgot what it was called. It was it was really good, but I, I read the word multiple multiple times. And when you're reading, I don't know if you're like me, you you say it out loud in your head. So I just got uh, it. Just was pounded into my skull, Louisville. Um Very good book. Not great for the program, but good book. And uh, <laughs> Um, I forgot what it was called now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, this was a I, that was like 17 books ago, and I'm trying to remember what it was actually called. Rick Pitino, Louisville book. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's if it's the most recent one, I, I can't remember the title, uh, but it's like the Pitino My Story or whatever, where he tries to explain uh, what went on with the FBI deal and winds up giving us like zero new details. That <laughs> I don't know if that's the one you're talking about. No, he didn't write it. It was another books. journalist. Who, oh, The Last Temptation of Rick Patino. That's what it was. Oh, I, I, I did read that one back in the day. And that was another one that gave us like two new details, but really nothing earth shattering. No, but it was interesting to learn about just how Louisville became like a, a power in the commuter school and just changing over and everything. I thought it was really fascinating. I, I thought it was an interesting uh, read. And the old GM, or the old GM, the old AD that uh, built it there. I, it was it was fascinating um, about how it, it got to where it is. Um, I wanted to pick your brain today, Mike, about both football and basketball, because I think Louisville is in an interesting situation in both regards. Um, a lot of crossover, a lot of a lot of turnover. Weird season for football, weird season for basketball. Um, a lot of transfers uh, for basketball. We'll see. Um, questions about Malik Cunningham and things like that. But I want to start because <laughs> nothing can be normal at Louisville. Kind of like I'm in Rocky Top at Tennessee. Nothing can be normal at Tennessee. Nothing can be normal at Louisville because. Scott Satterfield made a lot of waves like where he was potentially interviewing it. Like, was there interest in other jobs? Like, is he committed to Louisville? Like, what is, what is your, not instinct, but like, what, what is your feeling on Satterfield's happiness at Louisville at this moment? I can tell you more about the fan base's happiness with Scott Satterfield mm-hmm. than, other jobs, but I, than I can uh, Satterfield himself, but it's, I like that you use the word weird a couple times there because I keep coming back to that weird, uh, to that word when I talk about Louisville sports and the current state of things when I'm doing uh, my podcast or interviews or what have you. It's just, it, it, there's an odd sense around the program and there really has been off and on since uh, the, the, you know, the Katina Powell stuff happened back in the fall of 2015. But with football, I think 
the one thing that you felt like you could hang your hat on if you're a local sports fan was, you know, Scott Satterfield, good guy, culture change. He's the antithesis of Bobby Petrino, all of that stuff. And then this past December, the, the flirtation with South Carolina happens. He plays it off a little bit. He outright lies about it at one point. And then the, the stories start leaking out. Assistants are upset about it. Assistants are leaving. And if you're a local fan, you're just kind of like, and what the hell? Like, like, this is the one thing that we thought we could rely on, that you were going to be here for a piece of time and you weren't going to embarrass us in, in the same way that other coaches in the past have. And instead, he does, and, and it comes on the heels. Not just It's not just in poor taste because we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic and L, like so many other schools across the country, had had to lay off a bunch of people within its athletic department and cut salaries and do all that good stuff. So even if Satterfield like a lot of people believe, wasn't really that interested in the job, but was kind of posturing to maybe get a raise. That is a is a read-the-room situation. That looks bad. And you're also coming off a, a, a really disappointing season where Louisville had a lot of buzz for potentially finishing you know, in the top four, top three of the ACC, and they wind up only winning four games. So you've got a fan base that I think right now doesn't really know how to feel about Scott Satterfield. In year one, they overachieved dramatically. He was ACC Coach of the Year. Everybody was over the moon. And then in year two, it's sort of the exact reverse. And now heading into year three, everybody's just kind of like waiting to see what happens. And I don't know. I mean, he needs to, he, like Chris Mack, if you want to talk about the, the big highlight sports at UofL, is going into a year where he really, really needs to step it up. If he doesn't win, this fan base is not going to be quick to forgive. If he does, then, you know, we'll let bygones be bygones and continue to look forward with the direction of the program. But it, it's definitely a very strange time to be a Louisville fan. Do you do you think fan base will let him, like, I guess just kind of like, oh, it's just the nature, he's just interviewing, who cares? Like, if we win, I don't really care what he's doing. Or do you think there is just some level of trust that's just permanently broken with Satterfield? I think both. I mean, I, I it, you have to understand a little bit of, the Louisville fan base's mindset based on the last two decades where every time they've had a really successful head coach, that head coach has gotten caught flirting with other schools. And then when he sort of re-upped on his commitment to the program and said, you know, I'm, I'm staying here, I'm, I'm here to go, uh, I'm here for good, all this stuff, they almost immediately leave for another job like a year later. It, it happened with Bobby Petrino the first go-round where he got caught flirting with Auburn. And then said, you know, signed this big time, long term deal, and said, I'm, you know, that was the past, Bobby. I'm here to stay for good. And then right after the Orange Bowl, signed with the Falcons. Um, Charlie Strong, the exact same thing happens. He turns down Tennessee. He talks about how his, you know, his, his word is his bond, and you know, he's not cut like that, and all this stuff that makes Louisville fans swoon. And then less than a year later, he's off to Texas. So this is a fan base that has been burned before. So I think there's definitely a lack of trust with Scott Satterfield at this point in time. But at the same time, if he comes out this year and wins eight or nine games, does more than a lot of people are projecting this team to do, I do think there's going to be forgiveness just because Louisville fans are kind of, you know, cynical by nature at this point. Like They just expect a really successful coach to leave, and they're kind of okay with that. I mean, this isn't a program that has had a whole lot of history before the last 30 years. And so I think best-case scenario for Louisville football fans is – you hire a, sort of an up-and-comer, a guy like Scott Satterfield or like Bobby Petrino when he was first hired or like Charlie Strong when he was first hired. They kill it here for three, four, five years, and then they move on to quote-unquote greener pastures, and 
you bring in somebody who does the exact same thing and builds on that success. I think that's sort of the blueprint uh, with global football. It's not like basketball where when you hire a men's basketball coach at UofL, you expect them to be here for 15, 20 years. You expect them to be lifers uh, unless something like what happened with Rick Pitino winds up happening. So I, I think the fan base, they're not going to trust Scott Satterfield if he comes out and wins nine or ten games, but they're still going to appreciate him. They, they just want to see winning football here uh, again. On the field, what what happened in year two under Satterfield? Why did they take a step back? Why was it so frustrating? Was it just all turnovers, or was there more on the field that you saw that you were like, Ugh, I, 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 I did not see this coming? The turnovers are, are the biggest thing, and it's such a – it's such an obvious explanation that I think a lot of fans want to look elsewhere. But when you look at the difference between 2019 and 2020, statistically, there wasn't a whole lot there. Like the offense was, was pretty good by and large when it came to explosive plays and when it came to just total yardage. The defense was a little bit better this past year, but still was certainly not great. But the big difference was Louisville was one of the worst. I think they actually were the worst turnover team in all of the FBS. They, they, their turnover rate was abysmal. And every time it seemed like they got a lot of a little bit of momentum going in big games, you know, Malik Cunningham fumbled the ball or J.V. Hawkins fumbled the ball or there was an interception. It was just fluke play after fluke play. And that was the, the, the biggest reason why you had an eight-win team in 2019 turning to a four-win team in 2020. There, there were a couple of other things. I think the play calling got a little bit bland. I, I think also – the familiarity within the ACC when it came to Scott Satterfield and his offense certainly helped some of the teams that were caught by surprise in 2019 prepare for this team a little bit better last year. I think that came into play. Um, but it, for the most part, the turnovers were just uh, the biggest thing. And there were a lot of games where if Louisville had won the turnover battle, you feel like they would have had a chance to win the game. And, and that's been the biggest stat in Satterfield's tenure is they're undefeated when they turn the ball over less than their opponent. And I think they've only won one game where they have more turnovers than their opponent, and that was the uh, the, the first game this past season when they played Western Kentucky. So I, I wish I had a more in-depth, layered answer, but the biggest explanation for why things went so bad last year, just the, the, those absurd turnover numbers. Where are you at with Malik Cunningham? What are your expectations? Where's the fan base at with him? I think the fan base, sort of like they are with the football program on the whole, it's kind of all over the place with Willie Cunningham. There's a sense that he's been good, but not quite good enough. Um, he does. I mean, there's a lot to like about Malik Cunningham outside of the turnovers this past season. He understands the offense really well. He gets the ball in the hands of playmakers in positions where they can, you know, turn a seven yard catch into a 70 yard touchdown. You saw that a lot with Tutu Atwell over the last two years and to a lesser extent with Jess Fitzpatrick the last couple of seasons. Um, he also, I think, is a sort of an underrated athlete. He led all Power 5 conference quarterbacks in runs of 25 yards or more last season. Uh, he can definitely make plays in space. Um, there weren't as many design runs specifically for him this past year as there were in 2019, and that was largely because he, he kept getting injured in 2019. So I, I think the fan base is they're good with Malik Cunningham, but they want to see him take a step forward because the step forward that everybody was expecting to happen last year didn't really come to fruition. Um, he, he was good enough, but we were talking about him as potentially, you know, the second or third best quarterback in the ACC last year, and he was he was not that. There's there's no question about it. So um, you'd love to see him be a little bit more accurate when it comes to those intermediary passes. He's a really good deep ball thrower. He 
struggled more with those 15 to 20 yard passes uh, over the middle of the field or, or to the sidelines. Um, decision making has been good, but not great. Um, and, and then uh, I, I don't know. I think that the the issue you have if you're a Louisville fan right now is there's not a whole lot behind them. They they haven't brought in these high rated recruits that can really push Malik Cunningham. Their backup last year um, was still Evan Conley, who was an Appalachian State commit before Scott Satterfield got the Louisville job. I know Joel in the past was third string, a former starter. He's moved on now. They brought in Luke McCaffrey from uh, from Nebraska, who maybe could push uh, Cunningham a little bit, but I think they see him more as sort of a, an athlete who can do things outside the quarterback position. We'll find out there. But uh, they lost Trevor Purdy to Florida State. He was the, the crown jewel of the 2020 recruiting class who wound up going elsewhere. And then T. Webb, the quarterback who did come in here from last year's recruiting class, uh, has also transferred. So I think there's a little bit of concern uh, as far as the lack of depth in the quarterback room is concerned. But Malik Cunningham, he's going to be the guy. Like This is his team. The coaching staff has made that very, very apparent. And if he can't get the job done, if that becomes obvious uh, through the first four or five games of this season, I don't really know where Louisville turns. And that's, I think, where the fans' biggest concern lies right now. Interesting. Um, let's pivot to basketball, uh, Mike, because this this is weird uh, when I think about this this future for, for basketball and just kind of where they're at with Mac and what kind of season they had um, at my favorite uh, KFC Yum Center, who's who's not all about the Yum Center. But um, Jones, what do, you, what do you make of Carly Jones? What is his future at Louisville right now? Yeah, that's sort of the million-dollar question. He announced over the weekend that he's entering the NBA draft, or at least he's entering the process of the NBA draft, but maintaining his uh, eligibility at Louisville. So he's either going to go pro or he's going to come back to Louisville. There's not going to be any sort of transfer portal thing. And because the draft has been pushed back to July, players don't have to make decisions until the, the, the first part of July. So this thing could drag out for another couple of months, and Louisville won't really know what Carlick is going to do. Um, my understanding is that he's genuinely torn. The people who are closest to him have all sort of said, you know, one day he wakes up and talks about, you know, I'm going to be 24 next year. I, I want to go ahead and start making money playing this game. And then the next day he'll wake up and say, I really want to play in the NCAA tournament. I don't want this to be the way my college career ends. If you ask me to, to guess right now, I still think it's more likely than not that he winds up going pro just because, you know, he spent five years in college you have a limited window to get paid to play this game, whether it's in the NBA or, or elsewhere. Why not go ahead and make that move? Um, but it, it certainly seems like he's he's wrestling with this decision. There's at least something of a chance that he comes back for one more season at Louisville. And if he does, I think that vaults Louisville from you know fringe top, top 25 status to legitimate top 20 team. He was that good. I mean, he was the runner-up for ACC Player of the Year. He was first-team All-Conference. He did a little bit of everything for this team. He did. He, he was the only reason why Louisville was squarely on the bubble when it came to early March. And if he comes back, it's pretty obvious that it's going to be a huge, huge boon for next year's team. What do you make of next year's team right now? It's it's a huge year for Chris Mack because you know he comes in here. I, I think the fan base was understanding of the fact that he walked into a unique situation as far as Louisville's concerned where nobody expected him to, to have teams that were going to compete for national titles. We all knew that the NCAA class was there. We all knew, we still know, that more punishments are coming. It's more difficult to recruit now at Louisville than it has been in years past. And so I think fans were going to be patient. He has an overachieving first year where they make the NCAA tournament as a seven seed, get beat in the first round, 
YouTube, I mean, they were preseason top 10. A lot of people thought that, that was a team that could compete for a national title. They kind of underachieved during the regular season and then never got a chance to make up for that in March. We'll never know how that NCAA tournament would have gone for Louisville. And if, you know, if that team made a run to the Elite Eight or to a Final Four, everybody looks at Chris Mack totally differently than they do now. If they lose in the first round, everybody is even more critical of Chris Mack than they are right now. And then this past season, look, he didn't make the NCAA tournament. Expectations weren't huge going into the year. But when you were a top 25 team halfway through the season, you had an all-conference player. You had a likely NBA draft pick in David Johnson. You had a McDonald's All-American in Samuel Williamson. The, the low bar, the minimum bar, is make the NCAA tournament. Louisville didn't get that done. They were the first team left out. And now fans are, are, are upset. They demanded change. Matt got rid of a couple of systems. He's brought in uh, three transfers. A couple of kids have transferred out of the program. You're, you're going to have some new assistants named in, in the weeks ahead. And this is a gigantic season for Chris Mack because I feel like everyone knows it's the last one where Louisville's NCAA punishments aren't going to come into play. Everyone's expecting a postseason ban to come at some point, at least one. They don't think it's going to affect next season, but it probably will affect the 2023 NCAA tournament. So if you're going to to head into that period of time with the fan base feeling good about things and feeling optimistic about the future, it pretty much all has to stem from a really good 2021-22 season. And he's got to get that done. He's got a, a roster now with a lot of, I think, good pieces. The big issue and the big task for him is figuring out how all those pieces fit together. We'll end here, Mike. True or false? After, let's say, summer 2022, Chris Mack and Scott Satterfield are both still head coaches at the University of Louisville. I'm going to say true. Okay. Um, I think that, I think Mack is the safer bet right now. It would take something, it would take something like what we just saw at Cincinnati for Mac to, to get fired because you have to remember his contract is laid out in a way to where if Louisville does get into other postseason bans in the NCAA, which again, everybody's kind of assuming that that's going to happen. His contract gets extended. He, he gets more money. His buyout becomes even more difficult for Louisville to get out of. And I mean, the flip side is Mac leaving for another job, which he really hasn't done enough at Louisville to justify getting a higher profile job. Um, if one of those were to open up in, in the years ahead. So I think that Chris Mack, for better or worse, is, I don't want to say stuck here, but he's going to be Louisville's head coach for multiple seasons ahead. Again, unless this upcoming year is just a complete catastrophe. Satterfield is probably the safer bet to go somewhere else. Um, but, but again, for him to be attractive for you know an SEC school or one of the schools back in the Carolinas where he you know has spent most of his life, he's going to have to have a really overachieving 2021 season. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think Louisville can be okay this year. Maybe they can win six or seven games. But if you're, I'm trying to think of an SEC school that would have a job opening, do you, are you really going to sell your fan base on a coach who has been basically 500 over three seasons at an ACC school that has had a decent amount of success over the years? I think that would be a tough sell. So my guess is that Satterfield probably is going to be a guy who's here for four or five, maybe six years total before those things start happening. And, and again, the other side is, does he fail hard enough that you get rid of him? I don't think that's going to happen either. Um, I, I, I would expect both those guys to still be around here a couple summers from now. 
Interesting. What can we check out from you this week at Card Chronicle or anywhere else, Mike? Yeah, we got a new podcast up uh, talking about the latest basketball roster changes and how Chris Mack might use the one available scholarship that he has for next year. Um, got some basketball recap stuff up on the website. We're also going to review spring practice and look at the new coaches on the U of L football staff coming up later this week. So check out check out all that good stuff over at cardchronicle.com. All right. Well, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for making the time today. I greatly appreciate it, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.